0: I'm Margaret Feinberg, and this is The JoyCast. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of The JoyCast, the hap-hap-happiest half hour of your week. As always, I'm your host, Margaret Feinberg, just decided to try the keto diet in order to peel 15 pounds that I gained writing my latest book and Bible study off. The book is titled Taste and See. Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. And I'm grateful for Templeton Press, who has sponsored this episode. Now, in this first season of the Joycast, we've been looking at how to experience more joy around the table. Christine Kane taught us how to gather with the expectation that God will show up and show off. Liz Curtis-Higgs helped us become funnier around the table. My friend Rachel Marie Stone equipped us to think more intentionally about food in a way that brings freedom and healing. And my friend Michelle Kushat gave us tips on how to rid ourselves of shame in everyday life and at the table. Well, today's guest brings something fresh and insightful, something I believe we all need if we're going to taste and see the goodness of God. Because sooner or later, we are going to find ourselves at a table where the person who pulls up the chair is suffering. Now, those moments can be scary. What do you say? What do you not say? How do you love the person well? And sometimes the person who pulls up the chair at the table suffering is going to be you. Now, those of you who have read my book, Fight Back with Joy, know that I walk among the fellowship of the suffering after battling cancer. And I know that many of you walk among the fellowship of the suffering from your own pains, your own losses, your own tragedies. Many people walk a path of suffering, but not everybody can write about it well. There's a title that recently came across my desk that made me stop in my tracks. And to be honest it's a book that you can't afford to miss. It's thoughtful, insightful, and beautifully written. It's called A Walking Disaster by Jamie Aiton. Now, Jamie is a psychologist who specializes in helping people recover after disaster strikes. He founded the Humanitarian Disaster Institute At Wheaton College. But what makes Jamie unique is that he doesn't just research and write about disasters, which, by the way, are becoming more frequent in our world today, but he's lived them. Six days after moving to Mississippi, Hurricane Katrina devastated the area. More recently, Jamie endured a vicious battle with stage four colon cancer. This is someone who has paid a heavy price and whose voice needs to be heard. Now, some of his counterintuitive insights may catch you off guard. He says things like, to find hope, be cautious of optimism. When you want help the least is when you need it the most. And spiritual surrender, rather than a passive act, is instead an act of profound courage. To fully experience the joy of the table, We have got to learn how to create a safe space for those who are suffering and also learn to discover God in the hard places for ourselves. In one of my favorite parts of the interview, Jamie teaches us what to look for when everything seems lost. So pull up a chair at our table. You don't want to miss this interview. Jamie, I am so thrilled to have you on the Joycast today.
1: Well, thanks for having me
0: you have a book called A Walking Disaster. And I know for myself and for many of our listeners, there are days that we feel like a complete walking disaster. Mm -hmm. But you are getting at something deeper in this incredible book that you've written. Uh, Your story is unique in that you aren't just talking, I feel off today. Things didn't come together today. I forgot to pick up my kids at carpool kind of day. You're talking about facing serious losses almost almost those job-like realities can you tell me a little bit just about your story i think it's important for our listeners to hear
1: sure so by training i'm actually a psychologist and right after finishing graduate school i went down to take my first teaching job in southern mississippi and my family and i we had moved in just 6 days before katrina hit so we move in and have this massive disaster strike in our community And right before it hit, my wife and I decided to pack up our young daughter and evacuate for safety. But then fast forward eight years later, and at the age of 35, now a dad to three young daughters, I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And so unlike Katrina, this time I couldn't evacuate. The disaster was happening inside me this time. I was, by all accounts, a walking disaster.
0: Now, the irony of all of this is that You know, after witnessing the devastation of Katrina, you dedicated your career to learning how people respond to and recover from all manners of disasters. And here you are now, a a literal walking disaster. How did that affect you personally as you went from studying and research to suddenly being that person again and even a deeper level beyond Katrina, but now in your own body?
1: You know, that was really challenging for me because in many ways, a big part of who I am is a helper that after Katrina, within weeks after that event, I was on the ground helping with the response, providing training, doing research. And then, like you mentioned, you know, with the time that followed that this work has taken me all over the globe, helping others affected by disasters or the refugee crisis or, you know, even civil conflicts. And now suddenly I was the help e. And it was really challenging for me to let others initially come in and care for me the way that I needed help.
0: Some of our listeners today are in that place themselves. They are, they, they are the walking disasters. They are the ones who are struggling. They, they have literally moved from a place of being strong, the one who has it all together, the one who cooks the meals, and now they have to let go. What wisdom and advice do you have for that person?
1: Well, you know, early on, after my diagnosis, uh, our college president actually came to my home to pray for me, and he was asking for something specific that he could you know, offer up in prayer, and I had mentioned to him that it was the struggle of letting others in to help me, and he reminded me that all of us are the type of people that need help, and that's really something that I took to heart and really would encourage you know, people that are going through their own personal disaster to do the same thing that I would encourage a community affected by a mass disaster, which is to go through this together, that recovery always takes place in community. It's so essential.
0: I know in my own life, I had a a season a few years back where I was going through a difficult time and and I remember putting out, it was like I was putting out my palm to others saying, no, no, I don't need you. No, no. And, And I remember one day I sensed the Holy Spirit say, when you stick out your palm and you say no to others, you're not saying no to them you're saying no to me hmm. and, and recognizing that Christ is actually working in those people's lives as they are trying to serve and love. Now, one of the things that that really caught my attention um, in, in your book is you describe this moment of, of trying to struggle to make meaning of disasters and that we all do this in different ways. But you you tell the story of of recognizing that of Christ joining you in the tomb. Can you talk to me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that I had studied years before my own experience was how meaning can help us uh, be more resilient in times of adversity. But that was something I really struggled when I found out about my cancer diagnosis. And I found myself asking why questions and asking questions that I felt like I was getting no answers to. And then I had to go for uh, radiation. And uh, on this particular machine that I was getting, it kind of felt like I was being, I laid down and I was kind of like being moved into a cave, uh, you know, for the machine to work. And as I was going in, I was feeling really, you know, isolated. I was feeling sorry for myself. I was feeling angry, all of these emotions and just felt alone in my suffering. And in that moment, I had the image of Christ going into the tomb as I was being slowly moved into the machine. And then when I came out, had the image of Christ coming and rising from the grave and from the tomb. And it helped to remind me that no matter what happened in this life, that Christ ultimately had victory over not only my experience, but for all of us.
0: I've seen in my own life um, with battling cancer, with being embezzled, with some of the different challenges that we've had, that there is this decision that we need to make. You know, there are healthy ways to find meaning in disasters and there are unhealthy ways. Can you identify some of the hallmarks so so that maybe for our listeners who, who, are, who are trying to make meaning, trying to find that thing in the midst and, and, and some of the unhealthy ways we do that, but also followed by some of the healthy ways we can do that?
1: Sure. You know, I think one of the things that's really important is that we keep striving for meaning. And we did some research. So now, in addition to the mass disasters, I'm actually doing some work with cancer survivors. And one of the things that we found was even when people are engaging, like striving, that it can have continued positive benefits on their well-being, even if they haven't fully arrived at making meaning out of the situation. And I think that's really useful to know because, We need to recognize that this isn't something that just like automatically happens, that suddenly we get the answer we were looking for. You know, in fact, when I went back through and looked at scripture, because I was struggling to find answers, I realized that God doesn't promise to tell us that we're going to get all the answers to our questions, but he does promise to be there with us in our suffering. And so I think the healthy ways of making meaning come from continuing to engage, continuing to strive to search for answers. And, you know, there was a colleague of mine who uh, does disaster work and had deployed after Hurricane Sandy. And she said they came up on a house that had lost the roof and, you know, lots of damage. And they expected the survivor when they came to the door to really be shaken up by it. But after a pause, he said, you know, sometimes you have to lose the roof to see the stars. And mm-hmm. that's something that I've tried to remind myself that, you know, not that um, having the answer is going to make everything better. But it reminds me to look upward and to look to God and uh, seek his presence.
0: So practical and so good. I know in my own um, wrestling with cancer, there was that moment of people would ask me, do you ask the question, uh, why me? And, and for whatever reason, in the way I was raised and knowing Christ, I I'd never asked the question, why me? But there is the question, why not me? Mm. It, and why not? Why? Why not? And so I think sometimes, and what you're really getting at here, is one of the most powerful ways to process suffering and loss, and I think this is true not just for ourselves when we pull up a seat at the table, but when others pull up, is not to ask the question, you know, why me as much as why not me, and which leads to the question of what does Christ want to do in and through this? Now, one of the things that I, I love about your book— um a walking disaster is that you highlight this this incredible difference between optimism and hope. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about the difference in that that exposes and reveals our our own hearts. What what do you see as the the defining line, the distinguishing between those two elements?
1: Well, I think it's important to recognize too for listeners to know that I am by default a pathological optimist. So that that <laughs> you know, so that, that's actually a term that my wife sometimes uses uh for me. You know, she would call herself a realist, but calls me a pathological optimist. So and and I share that because you know, I, I've even had people say, you know, Jamie, how can you do this work like with the things that you see and still have a sense of humor or you still sound like a pretty cheery person? Like, how is that? And, and one of the things is I think that kind of God-given optimism in the way that I'm hardwired. But I realized through going through cancer that optimism wasn't enough. It it ended up falling short, you know, and, and as a scholar, I know that optimism helps with when people are going through trials like cancer. So it's important, but we got to be careful. It's not the end all. And unfortunately, I think in my own life, that's kind of what I was holding up and grasping to. And it was only when things got, you know, super rock bottom for me that I realized I needed something more. And when I was able to shift to hope, what that helped me do was to understand that optimism was What I hoped would happen, but hope, true hope in God, is that he's still going to take care of us even if things don't turn out the way we want.
0: One of the, the ideas I remember that people would come up to me, and, and sometimes, I don't know if you experienced this as well, it was a little bit painful, is that people would come up and they would say, well, you know, if you just stay optimistic, your cancer will go away. Like this idea that if I had enough positive thoughts, that somehow the cancer cells would disappear. And, and obviously, there is that, that need for optimism, that need for hope just to get oxygen in your lungs to be able to go each day. But I love how you say optimism, it's just not enough. And, and that in hope, there is that anchor, uh, there is that direction, there is that healing, there is that provision that is found in Christ. When did you find yourself, what did it look like for you in that moment when hope became a reality? Was that, was that found in scripture? Was that found in prayer time? Was that found in just a realization as more and more was being stripped away? What did that look like for you? And, and what advice do you have for the person who wants to move from optimism to hope? Sure.
1: You know, for me, I think it really came out of a necessity that it was as more and more kept getting stripped away from me, that I was finding that my optimism wasn't enough to sustain me. And I had gone through a summer where I received radiation five days a week um, and then had oral chemo twice a day, every day. And then as soon as I started to bounce back from finishing that, I had to have a massive surgery that left me bedridden for um, about a month. And I had never experienced not just pain, but actual suffering until after that surgery. That it was just, I remember feeling like I don't know if I'm ever going to get well. And even having the thought of this must be what death coming near feels like, and was almost ready to give up. And thinking about if I could just give up, it would be easier than what I'm going through now. And it was in the, that moment when I really realized. That I was trying to do the fight all on my own and that I couldn't, you know, that I needed to rely not just on my social support and family and friends, but I also needed to put my full faith, everything about me and my life into God's hands.
0: Mm. You know, sometimes at the table where we gather around, we are the people who feel like Job. It is hard. It is scary. It, it can be scary even to pull up a seat to the table because we don't know how people are going to respond. We don't know if they're going to say hurtful things. At the same time, there are those who, who have the table and suddenly someone pulls up a chair who is in the midst of suffering, who is in an inexplainable Job season. I I got word this week of a friend who – um. Her sister was um, dating someone, and, and he was actually decapitated in a freak accident. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it, terrible, terrible. At the, at the same time, uh, her brother is in the final stages of, of his fight with cancer and, and is expected not to live beyond the, the last next few weeks. A- and then just a few days ago, the mom was struggling to get oxygen in her lungs, was being transported to the hospital. And on the way, her dad had a heart attack and died. And, and it is that sense of sometimes things turn so south so fast, it seems like it, it just will not, it will not let go. It's hard to make sense. It is that, that disaster. And those happen in, in, in geography and in weather and in climate, and but also in our own families and in our own relationships and lives. What inspiration, what hope, what wisdom do you have for the person who's listening right now and, and just can't even wrap their their head or their mind about what is happening to them?
1: You know, I think when we find that our life is turned upside down, just encourage others to be authentic in their relationships, both with those that are closest to them and with God, that it's okay to feel confused. It's okay to feel sorrow. It's okay to feel anger, that God still hears our prayers, even when we don't know what to offer up and to know that he's there with us in that time of suffering.
0: I know that one of the things that I think all of us fear is is saying the wrong thing, of doing the wrong Mm -hmm. thing. You have some... One of the reasons I love this book so much is because it's not just the story of... of your story of of Katrina or cancer, but you have so much rich background in helping us see and understand disasters from different lenses. And and you describe how at Sandy Hook following 2012, the shooting there, that the town of 27,000 residents received 65,000 teddy bears. And so... All of the energy that could have been spent on caring and providing was actually spent on, on storing and unpacking teddy bears. Or or you described in the following uh, Hurricane Katrina, a really well-meaning church raised $60,000 to send microwavable meals to the region, not realizing there was no refrigeration or electricity, and those meals rotted on the side of the road. And, and I love this because you have this depth and this this background, this this insight within your book, but then it becomes practical to us because here we are, and, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to give somebody a microwavable meal that is going to rot. We don't want to send the 430th blanket or the 673rd teddy bear. What, what can we do? How, how do we be the helpers who don't make it worse, but make it better in practical ways?
1: You know, one of the first things that I would encourage is for individuals who are wanting help not to be an SUV. And that's a term that we use in the emergency management field sometimes to to talk about spontaneous, unaffiliated volunteers. And these are the folks that, when there is a need, just kind of parachute into a disaster area with really not knowing how to help and haven't been invited to help. So they end up actually adding more chaos and potentially causing harm than if they were part of an organized response. So if you really want to help, reach out to that person, let them know that you're thinking about them, and ask them What is it they need? What could you do to help? You know, oftentimes I think we come into these situations because we want to rescue the person who's suffering. But what we really need is not a hero, but we need a humble helper. We need somebody who's willing to find out what is it that you need in that moment. And the other part is, you know, and I even still struggle to this day. In fact, just yesterday, I had a friend who read my book and sent me just such an encouraging message on uh, Facebook, and shared about some struggles that they were having in their own life. And here I am today talking to you about how to help. And I still haven't responded to that message, if I'm honest here, because I was like, what if I say the wrong thing? And I share that because I want you to know that I still struggle with it. And I know that others struggle too. And that's normal. But what I've learned is that if we're going to truly help, we need to push through that and more than anything, just to be present. Don't worry about the words you're going to say. Don't worry, you know, just be there in the moment because your presence will say more than any words you could have spoken to that person.
0: It's so true. In the midst of crisis, in the midst of even joyous occasions, I think our our mind becomes like a camera taking all these snapshots of both who was there and who was not. And for me, there were things that were said, and I'm sure in your journeys that they were so painful and so not helpful. Um, at the same time, what really hurt the most often was people's silence. Mm. And, and so walking in with with tips and and um not tips but but walking in with those encouraging words um that you know what i i am for you and i am praying for you um asking the person like you said how can i help maybe even coming in with a list of ideas you know i could bring a meal pray drive your kids uh Pull the weeds, whatever it is, in that practical nature, so that you're you don't place the burden of asking how can I help on them when all of their needs are are changing around the clock. But you're going even deeper, saying here are four options. Just let me know, pick one. I'm there for you. But that idea of serving and giving the gift of your presence is so incredibly powerful. Let me ask. I think sometimes also as we gather around the table, we're hesitant. If I'm just honest, and I know I know I am too. It's we're hesitant to invite a person who is having that Job moment or is in that deep suffering sometimes to the table. We're afraid because it could be awkward. It could be um, we may say the wrong thing. We may not know how to respond. But at the same time, there is something powerful that happens when we create space for someone who is suffering at our tables. Talk to me a little bit about how our relationships, our lives, our relationship with God deepens as we learn to walk In each other's suffering?
1: You know, I think when we walk in suffering, one of the things that can be a struggle, you know, we talked about sometimes wanting to keep people kind of at arm's reach. That I know early on, my suffering became kind of like walls that I had put up to keep people, like you had even mentioned, you know, kind of at arm's distance. But what I realized was that. If instead of thinking of our wounds as walls, instead, it's much more powerful to think of them as doors where we let other people in through those wounds. And by doing so, that we get to experience one another in that vulnerability in such a more deeply authentic way and to really be known in ways that most people typically don't experience if they're not willing to take a risk and be vulnerable with one another.
0: Mm, So good, because suffering it is so painful. You have walked this path. I know I've walked this path. So many listeners have. But as we le- as we suffer and as we learn to grieve well, I believe that it expands our capacity for joy. Now, one of the questions that we always love to ask at the end of the joy cask is if you would be willing to share a recipe of something that you love to cook or love to eat around the table. And we're actually going to to share that recipe with our listeners online. Is there something that you, is kind of your, your, in your wheelhouse in the kitchen or on the grill?
1: So I think my favorite thing that I would make would be a coffee rubbed steak on the grill. Uh, So that kind of brings like everything I like in the world together in one place.
0: That sounds delicious. And what we're going to do is we are going to get that recipe and it will be up at www.margaretfeinberg.com forward slash joycast. And you are going to be able to enjoy a delicious coffee rub steak. Jamie, will you share with our listeners where they can find out more about you and more about your work as well as your book?
1: Sure. Uh, One place that you could visit would be my personal website at jamieayton.com. And there it'll also take you to links to our Humanitarian Disaster Institute, including our new master's program in humanitarian and disaster leadership. I'm also active on Twitter. Um, So, uh, you know, please do follow there and love to stay in touch.
0: That is fantastic. And also, I just want to put one more plug just to recognize Jamie's incredible work, not just in the book, which is beautifully written, but also in his work of thinking more deeply. Uh, more spiritually, more reflective on disaster work because we are living in a world where the rate of disasters, both natural and otherwise, are picking up pace. And so he is just an incredible resource. The work he does, uh, Walking Disaster, the book he's written—if you don't have it, grab a copy. It—it um, it came across, across my desk, and I just—I was utterly smitten with it. So thank you so much today, Jamie, for being on the Joycast. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this edition of The Joycast. If you've enjoyed today's conversation and you'd like to dive deeper into the unexpected joys awaiting you around your table, check out my new book and Bible study, Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. These resources will help you savor your life, nourish your friendships, and embark on your greatest faith adventure. You can purchase them at your favorite retailer or margaretfeinbergstore.com. If you do, reach out to me on social media or my website and let me know what you think. Until we meet again, bon appetit and amen.